Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. We are so glad you're with us on this Tuesday. Good morning. Good morning. Get some sleep. No. No. <laughs> Told you. Best shift on earth. Best shift ever. I'm Woo. so happy to have Sarah Seidner by my side today. We're glad you're with us. Caitlin is off. Let's get started with five things to know for this Tuesday, May 23rd. Happening overnight, a U-Haul crashing into a security barrier near the White House. The driver arrested facing charges of threatening to kill, kidnap, or inflict harm on a president, vice president, or family member. Secret Service says that crash may have been intentional. Just nine days to go and still no deal in sight. President Biden and Speaker McCarthy saying they had a productive meeting, but still don't have a deal on the debt ceiling as Janet Yellen issues a sobering economic look. Also new this morning, a stark warning for all parents, for all of us, really. The U.S. Surgeon General is now labeling social media a profound risk of harm for children. And the Denver Nuggets make franchise history sweeping the Los Angeles Lakers and advancing to the NBA Finals for the first time ever. LeBron James is now reportedly considering retirement. And out of this world video. NASA's rover brings us footage of craters and even a possible river on Mars. What this tells us about our planetary neighbors, CNN This Morning, starts right now. But here's where we begin. This developing overnight, maybe even after you went to sleep, a U-Haul truck ramming into security barriers near the White House. Police say the driver was threatening to kill, kidnap, or harm the president, vice president, or their family. Video shows police inspecting a Nazi flag with a swastika, a roll of duct tape, a notebook, and a black backpack that the suspect apparently had with him. Eyewitnesses say the driver crashed into the barriers, reversed, then tried to smash through them again. The Secret Service evacuated a nearby hotel as bomb technicians searched the truck to make sure there were no explosives. We are told nobody inside was hurt. So let's begin with our senior justice correspondent, Evan Perez, live at the scene. Terrifying. Evan, what do you know this morning? Yeah, good morning, uh, Poppy. This is the scene uh, where this all went down. Uh, We're uh, at Lafayette Park, just a few hundred meters from uh, the White House. Uh, And according to the police, uh, the uh, driver of this truck came onto the sidewalk here. You can see the tire marks here down on the sidewalk, uh, rammed into the bollards right there, the, uh, the, the barriers that are protecting the, the park and, uh, from access to the, uh, to the park and to this, the White House, uh, rammed it a couple of times uh, before they were uh, arrested and charged. Now, they're facing multiple uh, charges right now. Um, this uh, person has not been identified, but they're facing charges of assault with a dangerous weapon, threatening to kill or kidnap a president, uh, destruction of federal federal property, trespassing, a number of charges. We're expecting to to, uh, to learn more about the suspect 
later today. Uh, one of the things that happened immediately afterwards, of course, is the concern that there could be explosives inside that U-Haul truck. Uh, according to uh, the FBI, which did a, a, a search of it, no explosives were found. But for a time, the uh, Secret Service evacuated the Hay Adams Hotel, which is across the street. Uh, now, right over there, you see uh, Black Lives Matter Plaza. This is a uh, this is, of course, a scene of a lot of protests uh, in the wake of the killing of George Floyd. Uh, and, you know, looking at what you see in one of the videos there, uh, according to the police uh, who are doing a search of the U-Haul, what you see there is someone holding uh, uh, what appears to be a flag with a swastika on it. There's a backpack. Those are things that are apparently were found inside that U-Haul. And so the concern now is to figure out what what brought that person here to Washington and, of course, to the scene here. Poppy? My goodness, it is so striking, Evan, to see that laid out on the ground, swastika and, and those threats uh, to the president. Thank you very much for the reporting. Uh, now to former President Donald Trump, who is facing growing legal drama on several fronts this morning. He's set to appear in a Manhattan court by video in just a few hours in the Stormy Daniel Hush Money case after he pleaded not guilty to 34 charges in that case. Also, E. Jean Carroll asked the judge for more money in damages from the ex-president in addition to what she already won, which was a $5 million judgment against him in her civil assault and defamation case. This is in a separate defamation case stemming from the sexual abuse a jury found she suffered in a Bergdorf Goodman dressing room in the 90s. Carol wants additional punitive damages after Trump's comments at a CNN town hall where he again denied knowing or doing anything to her. And there's big new movement in the Mar-a-Lago classified documents case. Sources tell CNN prosecutors have subpoenaed the Trump organization for more information about business deals with foreign companies, specifically in countries that may have been in interested in the types of classified material recovered from the former president. And that's not all. The special counsel has obtained dozens of pages of notes from Trump attorney Evan Corcoran, it could damage the president's defense. Caitlin Polantz is at reporting. She joins us in Washington this morning. This is really interesting reporting that you guys broke yesterday about these really detailed notes and what they might mean to the special counsel's probe and to the former president's defense. Right. So, Sarah and Poppy, these notes were something that the Justice Department, we knew that they had been fighting for, an extraordinary court fight to get access to them. And now this is a first glimpse uh, that we are getting a whole team of us. We're speaking to sources about what those notes say, what they represent and what they are. And what they represent are extremely detailed notes from Donald Trump's lawyer, Evan Corcoran, from May 11th, the moment that they got a subpoena saying Donald Trump must turn over all classified records or records with classified markings on them in his possession back to the federal government to this grand jury criminal investigation. And then the notes span the entire way up to June 3rd. So the period of time where Evan Corker and this attorney went and searched uh, Mar-a-Lago specifically through boxes in a storage room and then handed over what he found to the Justice Department telling them, I don't believe there is anything else at the property. Now, there's a lot of questions there, and we don't have the full extent of what these notes say. And so we don't exactly know um, whether this could factor into the obstruction investigation. But we do know that these notes uh, reveal that Donald Trump was asking whether he could push back 
against the subpoena, not comply with it potentially, that might be something that he was just raising with a lawyer like he normally might, like any client might, but it could be factoring into this larger situation. And the fact that these notes are so detailed, one person said that they were overly detailed. Another person was surprised at how detailed they were. That's pretty significant because the Justice Department appears to be getting the amount of evidence that they really were seeking there. There is a lot of talk uh, it, from the attorneys that you all reported uh, about foreign dealings, uh, the Trump administration and foreign dealings. How significant are those developments? Right. We don't know exactly yet how this fits into the investigation, but we do know that the special counsel's office, uh, in a story that was first broke by the New York Times last night and that we were able to also confirm, special counsel's office subpoenaed details about foreign deals that the Trump organization may have made with about seven different countries dating the whole way back to 2017. So the time Trump was president up until now. Uh, and when you look at that step back, it suggests that the special counsel's office may be looking at deals uh, with countries that may have been interested in the sort of classified information Donald Trump was keeping after the presidency. But we just don't know yet how that fits into the bigger investigation. Also, the fact that E. Jean Carroll, Caitlin, is asking the judge who oversaw her, her case where the former president was found liable, is asking essentially the judge to reopen that case so she can request more in terms of um, claims of defamation after these comments to our Caitlin Collins at the CNN town hall. Listen to this. They said he didn't rape her. And did I didn't do anything did. else either. You know what? Because I have no idea who the hell she is. But Mr. President, I don't know can who I, this woman is. They said, sir, don't do it. This is a fake story, and you don't want to give it credibility. One That's thing why you, I didn't go. One thing you did do in this. And I swear, and I've never done that. And I swear to I have no idea who the hell. She's a Mr. whack president. job. So her claim there is what the former president said is defamation again. Right. Well, she's not suing him for those words specifically, but she wants to add them into an existing right. lawsuit. So Eugene Carroll, she had sued him for what he said after the presidency and won the defamation claims, that $5 million in damages uh, related to sexual battery and defamation. She won that. There's another ongoing lawsuit about what Donald Trump was saying, similar things that he would have said when he was president. It's tied up in court because there's a lot of questions of what to do when he was president, if he can be li held liable for that. But if she is able to win that case and get him held liable, she wants the judge and the jury to factor in all of the things he would have said at that CNN town mm -hmm. hall just earlier this month when they're calculating the punishment that he may need to mm -hmm. face. That's really interesting. Caitlin, thank you very much for the reporting on all those fronts. All right. Also this morning, President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy striking a more optimistic tone about yesterday's debt ceiling talks. Speaking after their meeting, McCarthy said he felt it was the best discussion they've had yet. I did feel the discussion was productive in areas that we have differences of opinion. Uh, we're going to have the staffs continue to get back together and uh, work on base some of the things that we had talked about. McCarthy has said that an agreement needs to be reached this week to give Congress enough time to write, read and vote by the June 1st deadline. We are cutting it so close, but it's still unclear how quickly the two sides will be able to reach a deal. CNN's Arlette Signs is live at the White House with more. They better start talking. They better start doing right, Arlette. 
Yes, Sarah. And President Biden last night really struck the same tone as you heard from House Speaker Kevin McCarthy as he described these meetings as productive, perhaps offering some glimmer of hope that these talks could be heading in the right direction. But they still emerge from that hour-long Oval Office meeting without a deal in hand. Now, negotiators met late last night up on Capitol Hill, breaking up a little before midnight, and they are expected to continue talking throughout the course of the day. Much of the disagreements that they have acknowledged uh, still remain around that issue of spending levels, as the president has proposed freezing them at current year levels, while Republicans insist they must be cut back to fiscal year 2022 levels. Now, one thing in this meeting that the president really stressed, and we've heard from the White House over the past few days, is that they need to be able to sell any type of agreement to both sides, Democrats and Republicans. And that is one of the key challenges in these negotiations, is reaching some type of bipartisan compromise. Now, this all comes as Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen really doubled down on her warning that the U.S. could default on its debts as early as June 1st. She said it's highly likely the U.S. would be unable to pay its obligations if that were to happen. And look, it feels like every morning we are here talking about the timeline. And yes, on paper, it is nine days away from a potential default. But if you take a look at the way things work up on Capitol Hill, it is a much tighter, tighter timeline. They need to write legislative text. Uh, that There's a rule in the House that requires a bill be posted for 72 hours before it's voted on. And then even if they get through that, it still needs to go through the Senate. So really, it appears that they are heading into crunch time at this moment. But both sides have acknowledged the urgency of the moment. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says that he plans to speak with Biden daily until they can reach an agreement. All right, Arlette Signs, with all of the details there, thank you so much. And this matters to all of you, right? I know it might sound wonky, like another sort of <laughs> stalemate in Washington, but this really matters to you if we default. We're talking about your Social Security, food stamps, SNAP, members of the military getting paid, veterans benefits, government employees, contractors, Social Security. I could go on and on. On Wall Street, there is a consensus that a default would likely plunge markets. That means you're... Savings, right? 401k. So far, investors, interestingly, don't seem overly concerned or the market's not showing it. Why is that? Our chief business correspondent, Chrissy Romans, is here. CNN reporter Matt Egan also joins us. Good morning, guys. Hi. Why, Romans? Well, because they think failure is not an option. And what Wall Street is reflecting right now is that they are not dumb enough to actually take us over into you know, the abyss. Now, that could change, and that could change quickly. I talked to a, a financial manager, Doug Flynn, this morning, who yeah. said, if they tiptoe over this line and then they're still arguing yeah. for, uh, you know, a few days, you're talking about a 40% decline in the S&P 500, and then suddenly they get religion when all of their constituents are calling them and their own savings accounts, uh, retirement savings accounts, are decimated. We know that back in uh, 2011, the stock market fell 17%. And that's even after they, they managed to get it done, right? So, I mean, it, it's just a very dangerous moment. And what you're hearing from investors is they're cautious, but they don't think they really, really are going to actually shoot American financial exceptionalism in the foot, you know? Go ahead. I was just going to ask you, Matt, what happens if Wall Street jumps first? In other words, they start reacting, saying, okay, Sell-off's happening now. It happened. Well, yeah, you know what? It might not be the worst thing. I mean, it's kind of been amazing to see how totally chill markets have been about this debt ceiling situation. I mean, the U.S. stock market is actually near the highest levels of the entire year. You would never know that there's this right. ticking time bomb, right, threatening to blow up the economy. But here's the problem. In some ways, you know, Congress is kind of like a toddler, 
And I think we've all learned that it's kind of hard to get a toddler to do anything that he or she doesn't want to do. So how do you get Congress to do something that it doesn't want to do? Well, if the markets were down, lawmakers would be getting a lot of calls from mm -hmm. their voters, from maybe more importantly, their donors. Right. That might be enough to light a fire under the politicians. Mm -hmm. You know, we actually saw this in 2008. If you remember, initially Congress voted down TARP, the controversial bailout of Wall Street. Then markets tanked. Lawmakers 7% in an hour. 7%. Right. Incredible. Markets tanked. Uh, lawmakers came back and then right. they approved it. And so we are hearing from some experts on Wall Street and in Washington that it might take some market turmoil to get yeah. Congress to do the right thing here. I still remember <clears throat> that day. The market tanked 788 points. Yep. I was in an airport somewhere looking and everyone was looking at the screen <laughs> at the close of the market. Everyone, you know, and then and then Congress got it together like they found religion like the next morning. And maybe they can find religion that quickly in, in this case. But we're so running out of time. I mean, I was listening to our Let's Report. Yeah. They should raise the debt ceiling and promise to keep working. That's the cleanest, simplest, most sane thing to do raise the debt ceiling, but promise to keep working on debt and deficits. Because long term, all of that debt at higher interest rates will choke out other investment in the United yeah. States. But right now, we are still, our borrowing, American borrowing power, is the envy of the world. It really is. And this is the cornerstone of the financial system. And there's no reason to be messing with this and with 401ks and with senior citizens' checks. Are you kidding me? Oh, it's nuts. And the problem is that you know, Treasury is running out of not just time, but cash. No, Christine checks it on her phone. 60 billion. 60 billion <laughs> down from more than 200 billion just two weeks ago. I have my bank account and the U.S. Treasury is right next to each other. <laughs> and that's why we're hearing Janet Yellen kind of double down on this early June deadline. So they, they do have to act very soon. She changed her wording slightly, but in an important way in that letter she wrote to Congress right. so yesterday. Right, now she says it's highly likely. Not just likely that a June default, June 1st default could happen. Thank you both very much. So just gut-wrenching video from the southern border. A four-year-old boy dropped over the fence. The Border Patrol giving an update on how the child is doing this morning. And a billionaire GOP mega-donor is offering a new explanation for why he bought a home for Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas's mother. That's ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Now to this heartbreaking surveillance video capturing the moment somebody dropped a four-year-old boy from a border barrier. It happened last Monday. U.S. Customs and Border Patrol just released this video. You see somebody hangs from the top of the barrier, pulls the child over, and then drops him to the ground. Rosa Flores is live in Houston this morning. Rosa, we talk so much about the numbers and the law and Congress, but this is about humans. This is about the human toll of what is going on. Yeah, and this is a four-year-old boy, according to U.S. Customs and Border Protection, Poppy. And according to Border Patrol, they came under fire once they went to this area to try to render aid to this little boy who was injured. Now, the, this happened in San Diego. The fire department also uh, responded. And according to CBP, even their air and marine operations responded via helicopter to provide cover while they were trying to help this little boy because they came under fire. Now, Poppy, all of this is under investigation. We don't know the condition of the little boy we've asked, but CBP says that they're investigating. The last Poppy. time we talked to you, you were on the border and a number of migrant encounters, the number of mi migrant encounters had dropped pretty significantly. This was just days after the expiration of Title 42. 
Do we have an update on where that stands? Because we just really got the first few days numbers. Where are we now? You know, the U.S. Customs and Border Protection um, uh, Patrol chief tweeted those numbers yesterday, and they account to about 3,000 migrant encounters per day. That's a 70% drop from the days leading up to the ending of Title 42, which the numbers were at about 10,000 migrant encounters per day. So the big question is why, of course. What I'm hearing from sources and contacts on the border is that there's a few reasons. First of all, that Mexico has upped its enforcement. They are returning migrants deeper into southern Mexico. And also, those thousands of migrants who were waiting have decided to wait in Mexico for the CBP-1 app to get one uh, appointment to go into a port of entry rather than entering the country illegally because in this post-Title 42 world, they've learned that there are legal consequences to entering the country illegally. So, Poppy, what I'm hearing from sources and contacts is that what we can expect to see are migrants taking riskier measures like what we're seeing here to enter the country undetected. And that could mean, of course, and unfortunately, more deaths. Wow. Rosa Flores, thank you for the updates. Appreciate the reporting. This coming to us this morning, we're getting a new troubling advisory about social media's impact on children. The Surgeon General is warning now that there is a profound risk of harms to children. Details on that are ahead. Also, this video showing a California dad saving his baby who jumped in a pool without a life vest. Surveillance video shows the one-year-old take the vest off, walk to the edge of the pool, he gets in. But in a matter of seconds, his dad, who is a firefighter, scoops him up, pulls him to safety from the water. I look over and I can't find him. And I ended up seeing him just sinking down to the bottom of the pool. So that's when I just went over there, swooped him up and got him out of the pool. He followed all the rules. He took all the proper precautions. And that's really the reason his son lived. This morning, we're getting new insight into the relationship between Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas and Harlan Crow from the GOP megadonor himself. The real estate magnate spoke to The Atlantic about his highly scrutinized relationship with Justice Thomas, a relationship that includes luxury travel, tuition gifts, and a real estate purchase that Crow says, quote, I have never, nor would I ever, think about talking about matters that relate to the judiciary with Justice Clarence Thomas. Though, he did follow up with this email to the reporter. It's not like we haven't talked about work-related issues. It's not realistic for two people to be friends and not talk about their jobs from time to time. It is worth remembering that a company related to Crow had an architectural copyright case before the court in the mid-2000s, though the court declined to hear it. Crow also addressed buying the home of Thomas's mother in a private real estate deal that allows her to live in it rent-free, saying, quote, I don't see the foot fault. Joining us now is Graham Wood, staff writer for The Atlantic, who interviewed Harlan Crow about his relationship with Justice Thomas. All right. I, the thing that really stood out to me was this idea that, like, of course we're friends and we talk about work, which is true for most of us. We do talk, usually complain, about work to, to our friends and family. But there is another layer here because Justice Thomas is a Supreme Court justice who could decide on cases that involve things that have to do with Crow. What was your take? 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, these two are, are certainly old friends. I mean, they've been friends since after Thomas got on the court, about 30 years. And uh, the way Crow talks about it, you know, they're people of the same generation. Uh, they have some uh, alignment and political views, I think. But most of the time when they talk, they talk about things like uh, their shared love of Motown, he said. They talk about uh, things that, that, you know, uh, like the weather, sports. Um, what I think Crow has a hard time understanding is that this, yes, this is a Supreme Court justice. And so forget house transactions. You, you can't buy a drink for a Supreme Court justice without someone wondering exactly what the nature of this relationship is. To Crow, clearly, he thinks of it as just a friendship. To everybody else, there's a lot more suspicion that that, that, that relationship deserves. One of the things that I find striking sort of as a thread throughout the piece is that he really downplays his power. So he denies talking to Crow at all about the law. He says to you he has little power over the American political scene. He points to Trump as an example of that. But a lot of this, by the way, happened way before Trump. Um, and then has some hindsight that is 2020 for him, right? Now he admits it looks kind of sketchy. Yeah, or, or 2016 hindsight. I mean, Harlan Crow is a GOP mega donor who has paid for think tanks that have been part of the intellectual architecture of the GOP. Yeah. He's also very much anti-Trump. So in 2016, when Donald Trump won, I think he kind of wondered, where did that all that money go if mm. what he was trying to build was something that was not a Trump Republican Party and he had no power to stop Donald Trump from, from rising? So, you know, you get people who are billionaires or near billionaires who, who think that they have bought power and then suddenly it doesn't go their way, and they feel as powerless as the next person. Of course, yeah. the next person doesn't have Clarence Thomas right. on speed dial, doesn't have connections to politicians left and right. But I, I think what Harlan Crow told me for the Atlantic piece really shows what it feels like to be someone who, who feels like he's in charge for a while and then turns out not to be. That's so interesting. I want to ask you about Clarence Thomas's role and kind of what Crow thought about it. Thomas never reported... Uh, that Crow bought this house for his mother. She could live in there rent-free until the end of her life. How did Crow describe his feelings about that purchase to you? So Crow thinks that he did nothing wrong with this purchase. Now, th the details of this purchase are, are as follows. It's a small house in this area of Georgia that uh, Clarence Thomas grew up in. Uh, and Crow has, over the years, paid for um, public library uh, donations, um, donations to preserve the culture of the Gullah Geechee people who are descendants of, of African slaves in that area. Uh, and he found that uh, this house that Clarence Thomas uh, had this association with was still inhabited by Clarence Thomas's mother, who's 94 years old, and he bought it for what he says, Crow says, was fair market value, about 130 grand. And uh, the mother is 94 years old, so Crow, who, of course, you know, he's one of the largest uh, real estate developers in the country. This is nothing to him. And he said, you know, I'll let a 94-year-old woman live there for the rest of her days, and that will be have a negligible effect on the value of the transaction. So from his perspective, he was buying a house to preserve 
for as a historic site or museum for the life of his friend and uh, in some ways one of his heroes, Clarence Thomas. And from the perspective of everyone else, he's writing a check to Clarence Thomas, who owned the house, and letting Clarence Thomas's mother live there for, for as long as she lives. So, again, it, it's, it's an example of where, from Crow's perspective, he's doing a nice thing. He's helping a friend. He's helping an, an American hero. And from everybody else's perspective, he's doing something that, that uh, deserves the deepest scrutiny because it involves the integrity of the Supreme Court of the United States. Which is being questioned in ways that it hasn't ever before. Uh, here we are in 2023. Thank you so much, Graham Wood, for your reporting and for coming on the show. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Well, a clean sweep. The Denver Nuggets knocked out the Lakers, and they're headed to the NBA Finals. So now, oh, this song. Really? Really? Uh, so now that LeBron James isn't going to the finals this year, what are his plans for next year? Retirement? Maybe. We'll see what happens going forward. Um, but I don't know. I don't know. James on the drive, goes inside, stop, shot, lock, gets it back. It's over. It's over. Denver makes history. The Nuggets are going to the NBA Finals for the first time in franchise history. After 47 seasons, see, sometimes it takes more than three tries. The Denver (laughs) Nuggets are headed to the NBA Finals for the very first time, and congratulations to them. That news may be getting a little overshadowed by the fact that people are worried that LeBron James, a Lakers superstar, may retire. Coy Wire has all the answers now. Good morning, Coy. What do you say? Good morning to you. Look, I think he still has some left in the tank. Good morning, Poppy and Sarah. He just became the league's all-time leading scorer this year, passing Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. He just put up 40 points in the Western Conference Finals at 38 years old. A lot of 38-year-olds get winded just taking their groceries to the car. But he was very cryptic when talking about his future after putting up an incredible performance. Here's some of it. He was on a mission. He dropped 31 of his game-high 40 points in the first half. Seemed like everything was going in, even passes. Aaron Gordon couldn't believe it. (laughs) Most playoff points in a half in his career. Year 20 in the league. Unfathomable, but check this out. Gordon couldn't believe this either. He didn't seem to do anything wrong. LeBron was just full of attitudes. Lakers take a 15-point lead into halftime, but the Nuggets two-time league MVP, Nikola Jokic dropped in uh, 30 points in this game. 14 rebounds, 13 assists, his eighth triple-double of the playoffs breaks the great Wilt Chamberlain's record for most in a postseason. In the final seconds, LeBron had a chance to send it to overtime, but Gordon gets the last laugh, blocking the shot. Denver completing the sweep 113-111, and LeBron gave a cryptic answer uh, about his future after the game. We'll see what happens going forward. Um, but I don't know. I don't know. I got a lot to think about, to be honest. I got a lot to think about, to be honest. And um, just for me personally, going going forward with the game of basketball, I got a lot to think about. 
All right, the Nuggets, they have a lot to think about, too. They'll get the winner of the Eastern Conference Finals, where the Heat can sweep the Celtics with a win tonight. Tip-off, 8.30 Eastern on our sister channel, TNT. Poppy and Sarah, I think it's important to remember about LeBron. Just a couple weeks ago, he said that his goal is still to play with his, young, his son, Bronny, who right. just committed to play at USC. But we'll see. I know he's, uh, again, 38, and that was a long, exhausting season. After the season, pro athletes, they just want to decompress and not think about playing for yeah. a while. I'm wondering, we were just chatting while you were talking, which is so rude. We're we sorry, We were also, Corey. it was, we, we were listening. <laughs> we were listening, though, we promise. But we were chatting. It's like, you know, when you lose the game and you don't go forward, your reaction is like, look, I've been doing this a long time. Like, maybe I'm going to, but you're not really in the mood to really think about it. You just want to, like, go sit down somewhere. So maybe he sticks around. I think it's good to make any big decision very Slowly. Yes. We're also talking, Coy, about like LeBron's next chapter is probably going to be more amazing even than his basketball, if that's possible. Given all he's done for kids, his I Promise school, like he's got so much ahead that is great, regardless of if he's on the court, don't you think? One of the most impressive athletes of all time, not just in his in his athletic career, but what he's done to uplift and inspire so many people totally. around the world. And at, to your mention of the, uh, the, the frustration, Sarah, you know, I mean, he making it to the conference finals is not a big thing for him. When he doesn't make the finals, yeah. it's a travesty. He's made. 10 finals appearances in his career. That's more than 27 of the 30 NBA teams. So, yes, a very big letdown for LeBron and a tough end to an incredible season for him. Yeah, but an incredible season indeed. <laughs> Truly. Thank you, Coy. Thank you, Coy. Mm-hmm. So Mars now, NASA's Mars rover, has sent back some really amazing pictures of the red planet, what they're telling scientists. Would you find And we have our first views of the Axiom crew members floating aboard. First is Commander Peggy Woodson rejoining the International Space Station. Handshakes, hugs, and high fives Next in low orbit. You're John looking Schindler, at the crew of a SpaceX capsule docking at the International Space Station. The crew, a decorated former NASA astronaut, and three paying customers up there for a week, the mission called AX2, was put together by the Houston-based company Axiom Space. It marks the second all-private mission to the orbiting outpost. Meantime, it's being carried out by commercial companies rather than the government. And another historic moment here. Big smiles from Rihanna Barnawi. She is now the first female Saudi to go to space. Barnari, a stem cell researcher, said last week, and I'm quoting here, I am very honored to be representing all the dreams of all the people in Saudi Arabia and all the women back home. Joining us now is astrophysicist Jenna Levin. She's a professor of physics and astronomy at Bernard College and the author of Black Hole Survival Guide. That sounds scary. <laughs> um, you're seeing this crew. It's a it's a. There are private astronauts, if you will, um, dock with the space station. What was your reaction when you saw that moment where it worked, it happened? It's always amazing. Space is hard and space is dangerous. And uh, it's always thrilling to see this very slow process. It took them two hours to bring pressurize the vessel that they have to pass through. But it comes to this moment of uh, these international communities meeting in space and collaborating together. 
what it, it reminds us that we're bickering down on earth in a very right. silly way. It's the one place where we all have to get along and That's we do. That's right. And they certainly yeah. will yeah, to survive. Right. They call that the overview effect, right? Mm-hmm. When you actually see the earth from space, it yeah. gives you a whole new perspective. I'm just interested because the commercial space travel is becoming, I'm not going to say common, but like right. we're talking about it more. We see it more on the news. Yeah. It's happening more. Mm-hmm. What is the actual impact of that? I do think part of this trip is a proof of concept that it, they want this to feel more familiar, these private agencies. And the ultimate ambition is to build a commercial space station outside of the International Space Station, which is obviously a collusion of governments, but a commercial space station where we can begin to discuss passengers coming and going and even commerce in space. So it's Thomas part of a very space. far vision. Amazon. Yeah. <laughs> I just think of the Jetsons here. I'm sorry. That's where my brain goes. <laughs> yeah. um, one of the three customers is John Schofner. He's mm-hmm. uh, an American who, who made his huge fortune in the international telecom business. Mm-hmm. Um, Saudi Arabia also has two citizens yeah. there, uh, Barnari and Ali Arkorani, mm-hmm. and who's a fighter pilot um, mm-hmm. with the Royal Saudi Air Force. They won't say how much... Because one person paid for themselves, and that was Schaffner. Uh-huh. Um, they won't say how much they're paying. That's right. Do you have any sense of? Well, what that I believe might it was fifty-five million dollars for the Axiom One crew the per. Previous. Right, the previous, and they aren't disclosing the price tag this time. But one can imagine it hasn't gone down. <laughs> <laughs> can we talk about Mars? Yes, Let's talk please. about Mars because. My daughter comes home from school and talks about one day people will be on Mars. And it's so amazing to think maybe, right, Mm -hmm. she's seven. NASA's Perseverance rover released these astonishing images, Mm -hmm. video into a crater on Mars. The rover's Twitter account wrote this, zooming in on the Belva Crater. Places like this where nature has done the excavating for you can be great for getting a look at exposed rocks under the surface. What are we learning from these images? So the crater that they're looking at that you're seeing on screen is about a half mile wide, and uh, it's probably from a meteorite impact. And it's within a much larger crater, much, much larger crater. What they think is that there might have been a really active river, a really uh, energetically flowing river. And that's incredibly exciting if that existed in Martian past, because where there's water, there's life. And this is, of course, really uh, not so subtly an exploration to see if there's evidence of microbial life from the past in um, Mars history and maybe under the surface. So they are actually seeing kind of rivulets, waves, almost in sediment, like you might see in sand uh, after water has has been there for a while, and also moving these very enormous structures. That can be done with a very active river or water flow. That is so cool. So cool. Can you imagine <laughs> rivers actively flowing on Mars? Oh, it's really pretty wow. amazing. Yeah. It's really cool. Yeah. One day. One day One we'll day. see it. <laughs> Jen 11, thank you so much for Thanks being Thanks so here. much for having me. Speaking of the Mars and now volcanoes, the most dangerous and active volcano in Mexico has roared back to life and is leaving a mess in surrounding neighborhoods. We'll show you New images this morning. And wedding bells for a billionaire. What we're learning this morning about Jeff Bezos' plans to tie the knot. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. really knocking it out of the park with the music this morning. (laughs) I'm impressed. And congrats to these folks, one of the world's richest 
people is getting married again. If you guess, Jeff Bezos, you're right. A source close to the couple Telsian and the Amazon founder is engaged to his longtime girlfriend, Lauren Sanchez. They first went public with their relationship in 2019. No details yet on what items will be on <laughs> the couple's Amazon wish list. <laughs> I think they're covered. Our entertainment reporter, Chloe Milas, has more. Billionaire Jeff Bezos is engaged. A source close to the couple says the Amazon founder and his partner Lauren Sanchez plan to tie the knot. Though no details about the proposal or any wedding plans have yet been made public. Sanchez, a philanthropist and former award-winning journalist, and Bezos first revealed their relationship in 2019. Lauren is the most generous, most big-hearted person um, that you would ever meet. Last year, I interviewed the couple at their Washington, D.C. home for their first-ever joint interview, revealing details of their lives together that previously hadn't been shared by the private couple. I'd love to know, what does a typical Saturday night look like for Jeff and Lauren? We can be kind of boring. <laughs> <laughs> You're never boring. I, can be a little, That's not true. But it's, I mean. I can be boring. It's really, I, I would say normal. We have dinner with the kids. Um, that's always fun. Bezos has four children from his previous marriage with Mackenzie Scott. And Sanchez has three children from previous relationships. There's seven between us, so there's a lot of, um, a lot of discussion. And then we watch a movie. And Typical with, Saturday night, probably by, a movie. By committee, it takes a long time to find that movie, wouldn't you say? <laughs> yeah, we probably spend more time picking the movie than we need to. But yeah, I think that's, that's the fun it's part. It's fun. As the founder of space company Blue Origin, Bezos was aboard a 2021 flight into space and back on Blue Origin's new Shepard rocket. Sanchez, also a helicopter pilot, said she's ready to head to space one day. She wants to go. Are I'm ready. Together? No, he's already been. We'll see. She, I think she has some ideas about who she wants to go with. We'll see. I think it'll be a great group of females. A source familiar with the making of Bezos's mega yacht says the billionaire had a figurehead at the bow of the ship made in the likeness of the Norse goddess Freya with a striking resemblance to Sanchez. A grand gesture that may hint at a grand wedding to come. Well, listen, I mean, this is all everyone has been talking about. No idea when this these nuptials will take place. Um, but look, they have been running the Bezos Earth Fund together. She has been instrumental in helping him with his philanthropy. Like I said, she's going to be headed to space. They have the Bezos Academy. So they have been working together and obviously, you know, truly in love for the past several years. And they're making it official. OK, I have just a really quick question. I promise it'll be quick. Um, <laughs> The statue that everyone's talking about that they think is her on the yacht, is that so her? So it is not her, although a striking resemblance. It's actually the Norse goddess Freya. So I hope I said that correctly. But yes, it is this beautiful mermaid-looking goddess on the front of the ship slash mega yacht. It's not a boat. It is much bigger than a boat. You don't have that on your yacht? No. I don't have the yacht. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Chloe. Thank you, Chloe. Congratulations <laughs> to them. And CNN This Morning continues right now. A U-Haul truck rammed into security barriers near the White House, and the driver is under arrest for allegedly threatening to kill, kidnap, or harm the president, the VP, or a family member. Police inspected a Nazi flag, a roll of duct tape, a notebook, and a black backpack they found at the scene. 
and the looming debt limit deadline. Experts warn of a global recession that could take years to recover from. This would be a generational economic self-inflicted wound. The fact that they are still committed to getting a deal is a positive sign. I felt we had a productive discussion. I believe we can get it done. Two new developments in the former president's many legal challenges. Eugene Carroll's team said that Trump's post-verdict statements show the depth of his malice. Now these notes reveal that the former president was having this conversation with his lawyer asking, how can we fight? Is he trying to willfully retain the documents? Portuguese police, at the request of German authorities, will search a reservoir. Christian Bruckner never charged. It does raise questions that it was a German man. A tip came from Germany. Could these things be related? No parent's going to give up on their child. Falling away, puts it up. Bang! Nikola Jokic knocks it down. Denver makes history. The Nuggets are going to the NBA Finals for the first time in franchise history. Got a lot to think about, to be honest, going forward with the game of basketball. One collective effort that we are growing as a team, as a franchise, I think it's a really nice to be a Nuggets fan. Sometimes, sometimes you just have to wait 47 years. That's and it. then you make it to the finals. It happens. Very it's good. proud of them. Yes. Are you a basketball girl? I, I do like basketball, um, and I'm concerned about LeBron leaving the game. But I need someone next to me who knows about sports. (laughs) It's very important. Caitlin usually has my back. I'm glad you've got that too. Um, And we'll see what happens with LeBron. So we'll get to that overnight, but we do begin with very serious news out of the nation's capital this morning. Developing overnight, police say a man in a U-Haul truck intentionally rammed security barriers near the White House. Now that man has been charged with threatening to kill, kidnap, or harm the president, vice president, or their family. Video shows investigators at the scene inspecting a Nazi flag with a swastika, a black backpack, a roll of duct tape, a notebook, and other items the suspect apparently had with him. The security, uh, the Secret Service, I should say, evacuated a nearby hotel as bomb technicians searched the truck to make sure there weren't any explosives inside. Here's what one eyewitness who watched it all unfold said. It's a U-Haul truck coming on H Street, and then he tried tried to run into the White House. And then he tried the first time and then went to the second time. And now it is right over there, right in front of the White House. Let's bring in former Deputy Director of the FBI and CNN Senior Law Enforcement Analyst, Andrew McCabe. So, Andy, some people are, I woke up to this, right? This happened after I went to bed last night. If people are waking up to this, what should they be thinking? Because the Secret Service is saying this may have been intentional. And then you look at the contents of what this suspect apparently had on him. Well, Poppy, I think that the charges alone speak to the intentionality of the act, right? So prosecutors have to have a factual basis to be able to charge this uh, person with those with trying to uh, attempting to kill or maim the president. They've got to have probable cause to be able to do that. So they have some information or evidence that indicates very clearly that this was an intentional act. That's coming not just from the, obviously the physical things that we see the uh, the video of the of the truck ramming the barricade, but likely even from material they collected from within the truck. We've heard that there's been a notebook. There may be writings or statements or maybe postings online, things like that, that are telling them that this person's intent was, in fact, to target the president or someone in the White House, which is, uh, you know, particularly, particularly concerning. Andrew, for for so, so long, um, we've been hearing um, not only from the president, but but even the FBI director that 
white supremacism, far right wing extremists are the yeah. biggest threat to this country uh, and its safety. And then you look at the contents of this person's backpack and you can't help but think, I guess they're right. That's absolutely right, Sarah. I mean, we've heard this again and again from the director of the FBI, from uh, the Secretary of Homeland Security and others testifying in front of Congress that this is the number one, certainly the number one terrorist threat that they're tracking right now, that is domestic violent extremists, and particularly domestic violent extremists who are motivated by anti-black uh, uh, racial uh, sentiments, right? So this fits very neatly within that warning that we've heard again and again. And I think you have to draw a line from uh, this apparent attack on the White House by someone bearing a Nazi flag to at least some of the people, it's hard to say how many, but some of the people involved in the January 6th attack on the Capitol. How do we know that? Because some of those folks were carrying the same sort of symbols, uh, Nazi flags, Confederate flags, things like that, that show you a commonality of ideology. It doesn't mean that they all know each other and they were all planning those two events together, but it shows you there is a thread of extremism and particularly racially motivated extremism in this country that is also now directed at uh, institutions of government. Uh, so these are things that our security professionals are very focused on right now. And as we saw last night, for good reason. It's terrifying. Andrew McCabe, thank you for all that. All right. Also this morning, President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy expressing optimism about their debt ceiling meeting Monday. McCarthy says he does feel that they did make progress, although no deal has been reached yet. I did feel the discussion was productive in areas that we have differences of opinion. Uh, we're going to have the staffs continue to get back together and uh, work on base some of the things that we had talked about. The two sides still remain pretty far apart on the issue of caps on future spending. And now a separate fight is brewing among the Democrats. Progressives are growing increasingly angry about the discussions of work requirements for social safety net programs. CNN's Lauren Fox is live on Capitol Hill with more on this. Uh, you hear the optimism here, probably for the first time between the two of them, but they are still far apart, aren't they? Yeah, exactly, Sarah. You know, productive but no progress is Washington speak for. This is slow going, at least in terms of where they are standing nine days before this critical deadline. The biggest sticking point that remains between these two party leaders is the reality that they are just very far apart when it comes to how much they believe we should be spending in terms of federal government appropriations. Right now, House Republicans are arguing they want to stick to those FY 2022 levels with just 1% increases for about six years. Meanwhile, the offer that the White House gave Republicans over the weekend was to freeze spending at the levels we are spending right now in FY 20. 23, and then move that forward for another two years. That gives you just a sense of how far those sides are apart. That's about $131 billion right now. Are they going to be able to work through that issue and then deal with some of the ancillary issues that we talked about, things like work requirements, things like clawing back some of those COVID funds? Those issues really can't be dealt with until they see if there's progress or room to move forward on that bigger question of how much the federal government should really be spending right now. Now, you've been reporting that there is some infighting among Democrats now as this goes on. They are fraying what's happening uh, between them. 
Well, I think one of the realities of these negotiations is everything is very closely held. And because not much progress has actually been made, there's some concern growing on both sides. We've talked a lot about those conservatives who fear that McCarthy could cut a big deal or a bad deal, excuse me. Now you have some liberals saying, we're worried that Biden could cut a bad deal. Here's Representative Pramila Jayapal. I think there would be a huge backlash from our entire uh, House Democratic, you know, caucus, certainly the progressives, but also in the streets. You know, I mean, I think that this is it's important that we don't take steps back from the very strong agenda that the president himself shepherded and led over the last two years. And progressives are arguing they also have very strong concerns about adding new work requirements to social safety net programs. So that just shows you any deal that's reached between Biden and McCarthy is going to have to go right through the middle of both of their caucuses. Sarah? Lauren Fox, thank you so much for all of that uh, there on Capitol Hill. Also, more trouble, legal trouble, potentially, for former President Donald Trump. His attorney representing him in the Justice Department's probe into classified documents found at Mar-a-Lago took highly detailed notes about their conversation. Of particular note, the former president wanted to push back against the Justice Department's efforts to recover those classified documents, or at least ask his lawyers if it would be possible to fight that subpoena. The notes are now from Trump's lawyer, Evan Corcoran, are now in the hands of the special counsel, Jack Smith. Also, sources tell CNN prosecutors have subpoenaed the Trump Organization for information about business deals with foreign companies, specifically in countries that may have been interested in the types of classified materials recovered from the former president at Mar-a-Lago. The Trump Organization has just released a statement. Let me read it to you in part. Quote, we made a strict pledge to not enter in any new foreign deals while President Trump was in office, a commitment that the company fully complied with. Joining us now, CNN political commentator Earl Lewis and former Manhattan assistant district attorney Jeremy Salon. Good to have you both. I, Jeremy, let me just start with you. It's normal that a attorney, a good attorney, Evan Corcoran, would take detailed notes. How... how they got to the media is, is another question, but the fact that Jack Smith has them now after such a fight to, to get to this point regardless, how could this impact the investigation? Well, on its face, people can think or assume that the president is just saying, hey, I want to fight this, and this is a reasonable conversation to have. It might be, right? We should give him that. You certainly should, but at the same time, that's a direct look into his intent hmm. and his knowledge that these are documents that are classified, these are documents I have to return. That I shouldn't have. Correct. But nonetheless, I'm going to find a way to challenge it. And there's legal means to do so. And then there's not legal means to do so. So it kind of defeats that argument that oh, I didn't so know. That's so interesting. I wanted to ask about attorney-client privilege. I couldn't help myself when I heard that the, the notes of one of his attorneys um, was sort of in the hands of Jack Smith. Can they use that if they, you know, if they deem, look, we got these can't say how, but we, we have them. Well, you'd certainly raise it as a defense. But uh, as we know, uh, attorney-client privilege is defeated if uh, what right. is going on is an attempt to either commit or obstruct the, uh, the investigation of a crime. And, and in, in that case, he's right back where he started. So, um, you know, the, the, what, what's really going to matter is what, what else went on in that conversation? Mm -hmm. It's one thing to, <clears throat> to learn that uh, Donald Trump asked, uh, can we sort of fight against the subpoena? Uh, but what else was said? What, what did the attorneys then tell him? How did he react to that? That's where it's going to start to get sticky, I think. Yeah, that's really interesting. Actually, uh, yeah. 
But it's interesting because that's a defense Nixon tried to use and then the Supreme Court said, look, you're, you, you, you can only do this to a certain point and when we're investigating a crime, you can't. Let's turn the table here on what E. Jean Carroll is trying to do after winning that uh, sexual battery and defense case against a former president. She's now trying to open up an ongoing case to add more Jeremy of Trump's words in the CNN town hall defaming her into that. Do you think she'll be successful? As a matter of law, there was a determination by that verdict that his words were malicious and defamatory. And he doubled down and continued that. So it's not necessarily, well, let me take, take that back. It's amending that, that ongoing complaint that already started from 2000, uh, from the previous complaint. Yeah. And it establishes and confirms that the president was willing to be malicious, knew it was, and it wasn't just his opinion. He was really using some of the same words that he was found liable for almost moments ago. I have a question about recent polling, Errol, to you. The numbers have gone up even after the for Trump, for Trump for, even after the liability, the five million dollars that he has to pay, according to the judge, E. Jean Carroll. Um, you're seeing these numbers trend up. Why is that? Yeah. I mean, one part of it, a very core thing that you have to keep in mind is that most people are not paying attention to these things. And so uh, in whatever capacity Donald Trump's name gets mentioned and he gets national exposure, it reminds some people, oh, I kind of liked him, or he used to be our president, or I might vote for him next year, something like that. And so you'll start to see some of those, those things uh, uh, play themselves out. Uh, does it necessarily mean that people look at him favorably and think that this means that he should be president because he, is, he just lost uh, another case or has is, is been indicted criminally in New York City? I don't think so. I, I couldn't help this. Right. I get a lot of um, sort of solicitation for money from, from all the parties because I've, as a reporter, gone to a lot of things. And so what you see sometimes is these cases being used as like, look, they're coming after me. Please give 5, 10, 25. I mean, it is being used as a fundraising tool. It is. And it's, I use the term funny, but that's really not appropriate. The argument has always been the deep state is after me and, right. and it, look, they're coming after me. But what the deep state, it's not, it's a state of mind and his words that's getting him deeper and deeper in trouble. And ultimately, this is going to catch up to him. He's got Georgia. He's got the city of New York. Now he's got the federal program that's been ongoing. So it's just one on top of the other. And the more he does this and the more he uses his words without his counsel and evidently even with his counsel, the more he's going to find himself in deeper trouble legally. And I would not be shocked ultimately if he, if he does end up incarcerated, which is something I would not have thought months ago or even weeks ago. Because there's so many different things that are developing that are really significant crimes. You're taking documents and materials that are confidential and you're using them to your advantage or concealing them. There's an ongoing investigation and you're knowingly taking steps to prevent the government from retrieving that property. Uh, that just sort of furthers the, my belief and I think many people, though, as I always say, the people and, or the government have to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt, that there is something amiss here. And it's just continuation and continuation of trouble that he's getting himself into with his words that are contradictory and his actions that arguably speak for himself. And if you recall, in the federal matter, the judge said on its face, there's criminality. That's a lower standard. Enough to continue. It's a correct. lower standard to continue the probe. Correct. Correct. And allowing the piercing of that privilege because of the crime fraud exception. So th there's something here. You can't just say where there's smoke, there's fire, but it's building and building. And I would be very concerned if I were Donald Trump. Wow. Jeremy Errol, thank you. As always, good to see you. All right. New this morning, the U.S. Surgeon General is issuing 
a rare advisory on social media use and its impact on children's mental health, warning of profound risk of harm. CNN medical correspondent Meg Terrell is with us in the studio. Uh, Meg, you ended up speaking with the attorney general about this. I think anyone who's a parent, anyone who is around kids can see this harm happening on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, this is something that, you know, the Surgeon General is really worried about both as a parent and as the doctor for the country. And of course, we know that use of social media among kids is almost universal. If you look at kids 13 to 17, 95% report to use social media. And though the minimum age is typically 13 to join these platforms, they found that 40% of kids ages 8 to 12 are on these platforms as well. And so while they found that there is some benefit to using social media, like creating community, especially for marginalized groups, they found the risk of harm is potentially much greater here, including things like depression and anxiety, going on social media instead of sleeping, online harassment, and of course, low self-esteem, where we've seen a lot of studies here. So they're calling on policymakers, they're calling on technology companies to be more transparent with data and to try to put more safety controls into place. It's really, really hard when you consider this. Um, How would social media companies responding to this because they have heard some of this before. Families have come out against them. Yeah, the pressure is really on these companies. And we haven't heard back from them this morning yet, uh, though we did reach out. But, you know, they've put these family guides into place, you know, TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, you know, guidance for parents about how their kids can use this safely. But one of the things the Surgeon General told us is that independent researchers say these companies are not sharing enough data. They need to be more transparent. And that is something they're really calling for. Um, you talk about the fact that the kids that young, I didn't realize it was 40% of kids yeah. that are really, really young um, and impressionable. What can parents do? Because if this data is not out there, they, they just have to deal with this on their own. Yeah, and that's one of the things they're trying to address with this advisory is really to be able to give more guidance. And so the Surgeon General is saying, create a family media plan. Really talk about this, figure out what you're going to do. Create tech-free zones, particularly around bedtime, maybe around mealtimes. Encourage your kids to have in-person friendships and really foster those for that important sort of brain and social development. And also model responsible social media behavior. We all have to get mm-hmm. off our phones when we're around our kids. I only have a four-year-old and I need to do that better. You know, teaching your kids about technology, reporting when they're cyberbullying, either to school or even to law enforcement, uh, and working with other parents. The Surgeon General told us that's something they're trying to do, even with young kids five and six, kind of banding together because they're strength in numbers and find like-minded people who are trying to do the same thing. These are really good. I think the hardest one for anybody is this one, (laughs) is not just to say it, but to do it yourself. It is hard. I just made a check there. You're welcome. There you go. (laughs) Really emphasize it. (laughs) Meg Terrell, thank you so much for your reporting this morning. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks, guys. Well, Donald Trump taking another shot at Ron DeSantis and praising Senator Tim Scott as he jumps in the presidential race. Thank you so much. And Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky visiting troops on the front line as Russia grapples with a major surprise attack on Russian soil. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Welcome back. South Carolina Senator Tim Scott is now the latest Republican to throw his hat into the 2024 presidential ring. He joins a growing crowd of candidate, a field of candidates. It's a crowded one looking to capture their party's nomination and shake up a contest that has been largely dominated by former President Trump and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who, by the way, 
has not formally announced, but he's going to this week. That's expected to happen in the coming days. Scott's team says he will try to strike an optimistic tone, more than Trump, more than DeSantis. And in his kickoff speech, Scott called himself the candidate Democrats fear the most. Listen. When I cut your taxes, they called me a prop. When I refunded the police, they called me a token. When I pushed back on President Biden, they even called me the N-word. I disrupt their narrative. I threaten their control. The truth of my life disrupts their lies. I'm the candidate the far left fears the most. Let's talk about that with senior uh, reporter at The Root, Jessica Washington, and senior political commentator and columnist at New York Magazine, Errol Lewis. Good morning, guys. Good morning. Do the Democrats fear him the most? I do not think so. Um, he will have to break 2% before anybody fears him. Let's just get that out of the way. But um, no, I mean, look, T- Tim Scott is running on his biography. He talks about how he went from cotton to Congress. And it's an inspiring story, and it's a great story. But it's not contrary to what Democrats talk about. I mean, the idea that he was raised by a single mother, overcame those obstacles, and has now had a successful political career is not out of step. It's not a partisan message. It's a very deeply American message that I think a lot of people can relate to. When he talks about personal responsibility as the engine that got him there, you know, I mean, Democrats can, if they do decide to engage him, turn around and say, well, listen, you know, you've got a lot of poverty in your state. Uh, It's nice to give people lectures about personal responsibility, but you could also try raising the minimum wage or improving what is ranked as the sixth worst school system in the whole country. Yeah, there are some other things that Tim Scott has come out against, um, being uh, the the only black American right now um, that is in the Senate as a Republican. Um, He has opposed civil rights laws. He has made it more difficult and increasingly targeting diversity, equity and inclusion policies. So within his own party and even the Democratic Party, because if Democrats fear them the most, the idea is that some Democrats may vote for him because of his story. Does that work? Does that make sense? I think it's really difficult to try and understand what lane Tim Scott would take up because he's talking, you know, he's almost kind of evoking this welfare queen's nostalgia, talking about, you know, this victimhood mentality, kind of bringing back these things, very targeted ways of kind of talking about poverty, kind of ways of talking about race without talking about race. So I think it's hard to imagine him capturing particularly white liberals or black voters with that kind of talk. But then you also think, okay, is he really going to get the Trumpist? Because he's not a Trumpian candidate. So who is Tim Scott for? I thought this um, response yesterday in in, uh, the interview he did with NBC was interesting on abortion. This is a question every single Republican candidate is going to be asked, and that is, would you sign a federal abortion ban? What's your actual stance as president on this? Here's what he said. I believe that life has intrinsic value because it comes from God. I have a 100% pro-life voting record. I'm a 100% pro-life conservative. As president of the United States, I would sign the most conservative legislation, pro-life legislation that can get to my desk. It's in contrast, Errol, to what Nikki Haley said last week, which is essentially, I'm going to level with the American people. There's no way that at least a federal ban is going to happen. Well, look, uh, Tim Scott is clearly playing to the evangelical base of the Republican Party. Um, He wants to go as far as he can in that direction to secure, uh, you know, to the extent that he's got a path to victory. He thinks that that's how he's going to sort of uh, start and then maybe pull some other people in. 
Um, that is a very tricky proposition, frankly. I mean, when you're talking about, uh, you know, the most conservative thing that can get to his desk, I mean, I think Nikki Haley may have sensed what we just saw in the last midterms, which is that yeah. if you want to awaken the Democratic base, start talking about, you know, taking away the abortion health care rights and, and see where it takes you. Um, I don't know if Tim Scott wants to do much more than win that evangelical base, win Iowa, which has happened before, you know, but it has not worked for Republican nominees. I mean, it was, you know, it was Ted Cruz in, in 2016. I mean, there are, there are evangelical candidates who win Iowa and get a sort of a, a head of steam, but they don't get the nomination. The last one to do that was George Bush, and that was in the year 2000. I mean, that's a generation ago. ago. I found it really interesting because Republicans have repeatedly said that abortion is a state's rights issue. And then you start hearing that apparently for some it is not. It is something they'd like to do federally. I do want to ask you, Jessica, quickly that you you talk to some political scientists about what Scott's real objective is. Um, He's going to say it's to run for president, which everyone does. Um, But is he looking for something different, vice president or potentially a, a cabinet position? Yeah, I think that's definitely a possibility. And that was something I've spoken to political science professors about, kind of, do you actually think Tim Scott is running? And obviously we don't know. We're not inside his head. But, I mean, it does seem like he has a very small lane to win. But could he end up in a, you know, Trump cabinet position? Is that something he's really thinking is much more of a possibility? I think that's definitely potentially true. Switching gears here, just because we have you guys, brilliant political minds, I want everyone to listen to what um, James Comer, Congressman Republican Congressman James Comer, said yesterday. Obviously, he is the chair of the House Oversight Committee and this ongoing probe he has into Biden and the Biden family. Here's what he said on Fox yesterday. You look at the polling, and right now Donald Trump is seven points ahead of Joe Biden and trending upward. Joe Biden's trending downward. And I believe that the media is looking around, scratching their head, and they're realizing that the American people are keeping up with our investigation, and they realize something's wrong here. So he's linking uh, his investigation to Biden's poll numbers. It's reminiscent of what Kevin McCarthy said in 2015 vis-a-vis Benghazi and Hillary Clinton. Let's listen. Everybody thought Hillary Clinton was unbeatable, right? But we put together a Benghazi special committee, a select committee, what are her numbers today? Her numbers are dropping. He a few days later walked that back, Errol, and said, no, now I didn't imply in any way that the work is political. Of course, it's not. Yeah, OK. <laughs> well, it, it cost him the speakership in, in 2015. Uh, on the other hand, he's the speaker now. So perhaps the politics are changing. Um, I think what you saw from Comer is, look, saying the quiet part out loud, uh, saying on national television what you would normally say in a closed room with donors or in, inside your caucus as you're making political strategy. It's, it's nice that he sort of laid out for us exactly what they're doing. I think there'll be a backlash. I don't think Americans like to see their government being used in such a nakedly partisan fashion. I think it will cause a lot of people to discount whatever it is they come up with. Uh, and in the end, he may wish that it, perhaps he had kept his mouth shut. Thank you, Errol, very much, Jessica. Thank you. Great to have you. All right, this fake image claiming to show an explosion near the Pentagon, causing confusion and even spooking the stock market, how it came to be shared by multiple verified Twitter Twitter accounts and why some believe it could be AI generated. Plus, Mexico's most dangerous active volcano has roared back to life and it actually put millions of people there on alert.
This morning, millions of people in Mexico are being warned to prepare for possibly evacuation as Mexico's most dangerous active volcano roars to life again. Local authorities say the volcano has been spewing ash onto several towns nearby. About 25 million people live in a 60-mile radius of this volcano, which is about 45 miles southeast of Mexico City. The volcano had been dormant for decades until it erupted in 1994. What you're about to see is not a real image, but the confusion it caused was indeed real. This picture, purporting to show an explosion near the Pentagon, was shared by multiple verified Twitter accounts on Monday, including an account falsely associating itself with Bloomberg News and a major Indian TV network, which later retracted the report. Even the stock market took a momentary dip shortly after the images started circulating. Joining us now... CNN's Donny O'Sullivan, it is the real thing. This is not an AI-generated version of Donny. At the moment. At the moment. This may change. For now. (laughs) I know that all our jobs are in danger, So, but we'll start with this. Where did this image come from? Yeah, so there's two parts to this, uh, and neither bodes well for the current information, misinformation environment we're in. Uh, They were shared by verified Twitter accounts, uh, meaning accounts with those blue check marks, uh, which essentially means nothing anymore uh, since Elon Musk took over. Uh, You know, blue, blue tick accounts before meant that the person running the account, it had been, um, uh, Twitter had proven that the person is the person who said there. Now, anybody can get a blue tick once they're willing to pay Elon Musk a few dollars a month. Uh, So what happened was a bunch of accounts, a bunch of verified accounts, including an account that falsely claimed to be linked to Bloomberg News, uh, shared this image all of a sudden across multiple social media platforms as well as on Telegram and elsewhere. So it did seem pretty coordinated. Then the other part of this, uh, of course, is the image itself. If you look at the image there, if you look closely, um, it, you know, it doesn't actually look anything like the Pentagon no. bus. Um, and AI experts we spoke to um, say that there's lots of indications in that image uh, that say th- th- that showed that it was made through artificial uh, intelligence technology. Uh, so two parts to this. Uh, it ended up getting picked up by Russian state media, funnily enough, um, uh, a television network uh, in India. And just as you mentioned, the, it, it led to the dip in the stock market. So even a pretty crude fake image like that, pair it with some verified Twitter accounts, it can cause trouble. Scary. We're in trouble. Before you go, though, I was just looking for this update because what we saw late yesterday was TikTok hit back at Montana, mm. banning TikTok from use on any phones, not just government phones, anyone. We talked to a small business you know, owner last week who uses it for her business. Um, can you just speak to the legal grounds on which TikTok is standing? Yeah, I mean, this is going to be a really interesting test case, right, for all the other states in the country. TikTok, uh, Montana trying to put in a total TikTok ban from January 1st uh, of next year. As you mentioned, we have heard from influencers, from TikTokers in the state. Mm-hmm. You know, I was talking to one uh, TikTok, TikTok talking um, <laughs> mom last week from Montana. She said that her family's income tripled uh, yes. in, the time, uh, in the time that um, that she has had a TikTok account. So it's a real source of income for people. But whether Montana is actually going to be um, able to do this or not, of course, TikTok is saying uh, this is a breach of the First Amendment. It's also uh, goes beyond the rights that states actually have. Mm. Um, and people are also just saying that technic- like, technically, how could you do this ban? Yeah. Uh, Montana is pointing to how um, betting apps uh, in states yeah. uh, are blocked. Well, but- they would fine the big companies that right. provide the platform. Yeah. Not the citizens. It. But China, interestingly, has called, weighed in now and called this an abuse of state power mm. because 
TikTok is owned by Chinese company ByteDance. Yeah, which I'm sure the TikTok comms team in the U.S. here like, are so happy that the Chinese uh, <laughs> foreign ministry is trying to help uh, make their case while TikTok here is trying to uh, distance themselves from the Chinese yeah. Communist Party. Doni O'Sullivan, I, you have to you have so much work to do. So uh, much work. We'll it get just a, keeps we'll get you. an AI of me to just do just save the, the work, country you know? from technological <laughs> no problem. Yeah, sure. like AI. We are counting on you, Doni O'Sullivan. Thank you so much for coming on this morning. Now to the man accused of killing four University of Idaho students, appearing in court and choosing to stand silent when asked to enter a plea, what that could tell us about his potential defense. Also happening today, police in Portugal resuming their search for little Madeline McCain, who was a toddler when she disappeared from that family vacation. This is Madeline back in 2007. We'll tell you the suspect that prosecutors are pointing to this morning. The man accused of killing four University of Idaho students stood silent in a courtroom yesterday as a judge asked him to enter his plea. Ms. Taylor, is Mr. Koberger prepared to plead to these charges? Your Honor, we will be standing silent. He said nothing. You saw there Brian Koberger in an orange jumpsuit stared straight ahead in court yesterday. The judge then entered not guilty plea on, uh, pleas on his behalf. Koberger is facing four murder charges and one burglary charge. Investigators accuse him of killing these four college students at an off-campus home in November. They believe he stabbed them to death while they were sleeping. CNN's Gene Casares is here. Um, Gene, prosecutors now have to decide if they're going to seek the death penalty, but I do want to ask you first, how unusual is it for a defendant to sit there and say nothing during a simple arraignment. You know, Sarah, I've covered the highest profile cases in this country for over 20 years now. I've never seen it. I have never seen it. And so I looked up the law because his attorney stood up and said, Your Honor, we are standing silent. Those were actual words. Now, under the law, the judge has to then enter pleas of not guilty. But I looked up the Idaho procedural criminal statutes and they don't talk about standing silent. What they say is refusal to answer. That's what they say. And when someone refuses to answer, then that not guilty plea has to be entered. But I have not seen it. And we could make assumptions all day why he is doing it, right? But let's look at the facts. His attorney is very astute. She is the most aggressive, most proficient, death penalty qualified public defender in Idaho. Let's look at the defendant. He was a criminal justice. He's got his master's. He was working on his Ph.D., Did he want to do this? Remember, the defendant's in charge of his defense, right? And I just looked this morning, brand new motion posted by the defense. They want all of the grand jury materials in their possession. And they have asked the judge, the judge has agreed for a 30-day extension for them to file any motions on this. So there could be a plan here with the defense that we don't know, but it's highly unusual. You know, I looked at him yesterday in court as he was being read the indictment by the judge. Normally, you just look at the judge. That's what I've seen defendants do. He was reading it Hmm. just like he was in a class and he would look at his attorney and he would sort of smile. And he was his demeanor was very, very interesting just to watch. But he has pleaded not guilty by way of the judge. The, The 
trial at this point is set for October 2nd, so they better file this motion of intent to seek death if they so do very rapidly. There'll be a hearing in June on the gag order. These poor families, they're going to have to go through all of this all over again. Jean Casares, And thank Mr. Goncalves was in the courtroom. He was. tweeted out that he stared at him the whole time, did not want to look away. He mm. wanted to make it uncomfortable for him. But he is innocent until proven That's guilty. Right. Thank you, Jean. I appreciate your reporting. Well, this now, police in Portugal are beginning a new search for British toddler Madeleine McCann. She was just three years old when she vanished from her bedroom while on vacation with her family in May of 2007. And now police are searching near a reservoir that's about 31 miles where she was last seen. CNN Scott McLean has the details. Madeline McCann would have turned 20 this month. Her family last saw her when she was three. She disappeared in 2007 during a family holiday in the Algarve region of Portugal. She was with her younger twin siblings while her parents were dining with friends nearby in the resort of Praia de Luz. The mystery of her disappearance gripped many across the UK, Portugal and Germany. On Tuesday, Portuguese police, at the request of German authorities, will search a reservoir near the Portuguese city of Silvish, around 50 kilometers from Praia de Luz. Over the past 16 years, police have searched numerous wells and properties in the area, including this one, which was searched in 2008. It is unclear whether it's connected to Christian Bruckner, the German suspect first named in the case in 2020. Bruckner, a convicted sex offender, lived in the Algarve between 1995 and 2007 in an apartment about a mile away from the resort where the McCanns were staying. He's in prison in Germany for the rape and murder of a 72-year-old woman committed in Portugal at the same resort. He has not been charged in McCann's disappearance and denies any involvement. But one German prosecutor said he believes she was killed by Bruckner. What makes you so certain that Madeleine McCann is dead? We have some evidence for this. We have no forensic evidence, but we have other evidence. Her family cling on to the hope that she could still be alive. No parent's going to give up on their child unless they know for certain their child's dead. And that we just don't have any evidence. So police sources say that they are looking for evidence of Bruckner's activities in this area. The last time that it was searched, it was done in the water. This time, though, there are divers and boats. Most of the searching team seems to be taking place on land. And Poppy and Sarah, German prosecutors, it seems, have some level of circumstantial evidence in this case. But under German law, they have to be able to prove to a judge that they could secure a conviction. And the clock is ticking right now. Bruckner is serving a seven-year prison term, and he has already completed more than half of it. Scott, thank you very, very much. Her whole family, obviously, in our heart as they continue to look for her. Thank you. The writer strike enters its third week. How networks are now working to try and strike-proof their fall lineups. And happening overnight, a man is charged with threatening to kill or harm a president, the president, after crashing a U-Haul into a security barrier near the White House, what investigators found at the scene. More CNN This Morning to come after the break.
Welcome back to CNN This Morning. So a large number of Hollywood studios and sets are dark still this morning as roughly 12,000 film and television writers continue this strike into the third week. They're demanding a new and fair contract, they argue, with the industry's major studios, saying the Writers Guild proposals on the table would, yes, cost the industry $429 million a year, but it would yield, they argue, $19 billion in original content for streaming services this year alone. This latest shutdown, not felt since the Writers Guild of America strike that took place 15 years ago. And it means many scripted projects have been put on hold. It has affected everything from late night television, I'm sure you missed that, to award ceremonies, to game shows as hosts sit out in a show of solidarity. Let's bring in senior TV editor for Variety, Brian Seinberg. Brian, it's great to have you. Thanks for having me here. What, and by the way, this is gonna get much more complicated with the directors at Guild about, about to come and what they're gonna do. but. Is this going to be 100 days plus like last time? They're pretty dug in. I, I do feel like this could last for quite a while. Dug in, can you explain the difference? Because the real argument is streaming is different. The way you distribute is different. We need to be compensated for that, not the traditional way of compensation. And they don't seem this far apart. They seem this far apart. Are they? They are. Both sides are really under the under a lot of scrutiny. The writers feel they can't make a living doing eight episodes of this on Netflix, right. five episodes here on Paramount+. Plus. But the studios, the big media companies, are under all kinds of duress, financial duress right now, thanks to streaming, making the, ju- the jump from linear TV to streaming. The economics are different, and they're under a, a great deal of pressure as well from Wall Street. Yeah. How do you strike-proof a lineup? That seems... That is such a good question. Weird to me, or hard. It is hard. I, I think that right, that's the network's own, own, own nomenclature, right. strike-proof. It's really, it's, we'll, we'll find out. But what you do is you use a lot of unscripted shows, reality, competition programming, uh, documentaries, news side stuff, sports, big on sport. Last week we had the upfronts, which when everyone tries to sell their ads for the next next fall season. Yeah. Lots of sports. Disney did an hour on sports, and then came in with with other things, Marvel and, and Star Wars later on. Right. Um, you wrote about that in your yeah. piece after the upfronts, and this was really interesting part of what you wrote in your opinion piece. Sports and news, however, are perishable, immediate. Now you still have to tune in at the exact moment <laughs> that it airs in order to derive maximum enjoyment from it, and that draws the larger simultaneous crowds at McDonald's and Apple need to generate impressions, talking about advertisers, yeah. uh, that make cash registers ring and revenue flow. This is a trend that was already emerging, right? But yeah. this strike accelerated. That's correct. Yeah. They've put a lot more pressure on it. You know, we've all, everyone is migrating from watching primetime dramas and comedies to watching something on Netflix or Amazon. But now, look at this. Now there's, there's by the fall, there'll be very little on come 10 o'clock on Wednesday. And so you're going to probably almost one time. CNN will be on. We'll be here. That's right. CNN and and sports. (laughs) CNN, news, sports, that will be on. That that you can guarantee. That's so, quote, unquote, strike proof. Is there a fear on the part of writers that this will accelerate because of the strike, um, that this will accelerate? And to be fair, I mean, we do want scripted programming. Like, this this shouldn't go away. But because of what's happening, because they're moving to doing things like reality TV a lot more, is there a fear on the part of the writers that, like, uh-oh, this might make this a faster turn? I'm not sure. You know, that's a great question. I think the unintended consequence of what their action is, they want a fair pay and fair conditions, but at the same time may help accelerate a trend that could back, backfire on them in some, in some degree. Absolutely. Wasn't this what caused the rise of reality TV? Was the last strike? It's, it helps, certainly. Yeah, and certainly and you see that as a threat. You see on all the offerings... Golden Bastard from ABC. Uh, you know, there are all kinds of... Uh, CBS announced yesterday they're going to run Big Brother a week later than usual so that it can, it can go into the fall season. You're seeing what's, what's going what's to be on the air very soon. 
I'm getting depressed because I really like beautifully written, scripted, yeah. thoughtful stories. And of course, it's, and they're so you know, talented. They are. Writers. They are. Brian, thank you. Thank you. Good to see you guys. Thank you. CNN This Morning continues right now. James on the drive, goes inside, stop, shot, lock, gets it back. It's over. It's over. Denver makes history. The Nuggets are going to the NBA Finals for the first time in franchise history. Good for them, right? I was definitely not up to see the game. Neither was I. (laughs) Good morning, everyone. We're glad you are with us. Sarah is by my side today. Sarah Seidner, so glad to have you. And the Denver Nuggets making history, heading to the NBA Finals for the first time ever after sweeping the Lakers. And now LeBron James is hinting at a possible retirement. Also, major developments in the Mar-a-Lago classified documents case. A source telling CNN the special counsel is looking in to Donald Trump's business deals in foreign countries that might be interested in those top secret records. We'll tell you how the Trump organization is responding to that this morning. And a stark new warning for all parents. Listen up, okay? If you're making your kids breakfast right now, this matters to them. And you, the U.S. Surgeon General, is now labeling social media a, quote, profound risk of harm for kids. This hour of CNN This Morning starts right now. Developing overnight, a security scare near the White House. Police say a man in a U-Haul truck seen there intentionally rammed a barrier. You see that happen, but could not get through. He's been charged with threatening to kill kidnap or harm the president, vice president, or members of their family. Video at the scene shows investigators inspecting, once that all stopped, a Nazi flag, a black backpack, a roll of duct tape, a notebook with writing in it, and other items the suspects apparently had with him. The Secret Service evacuated a nearby hotel as bomb technicians searched the truck to make sure there weren't any explosives inside. CNN senior justice correspondent Evan Perez is uh, outside the White House there, live on the scene. Um, Is there any sense of the motive here? I mean, obviously, if there was a threat to the president, the vice president, but you also see this Nazi flag in his things. Right. uh, That's uh, that's among the things that uh, I think we're still very puzzled about at this moment, uh, Sarah. Uh, the, the, the suspect is facing multiple charges. We're expecting to see that uh, later this morning. Uh, but here's what went down about 10 p.m. Uh, just outside the White House. This is Lafayette uh, Square here, uh, just a few hundred meters from, from the White House. Behind me here, you can see some of the tire tracks of this uh, U-Haul truck that uh, the authorities say uh, the driver was, uh, you know, brought onto the sidewalk, rammed uh, that security barrier behind me a couple of times before uh, police uh, took him into custody. Now, for a minute, for a while, uh, the there was a big concern, of course, because it is a, a truck that there might be explosives on board. This is what something that this is something that the FBI came and checked uh, the U-Haul. Uh, they found nothing, but for a time they did uh, evacuate the Hay Adams Hotel which is right be, uh, in front of me here uh, on the other side of the street. Now, uh, at this point, he's facing a, a number of charges. Um, one of them is threatening to kill or kidnap the president, 
the assault with a dangerous weapon, uh, destruction, destruction of federal property, uh, a trespassing, a number, a number of other charges are also pending. Uh, we're expecting from, to, to see uh, the uh, charges this morning from uh, the U.S. attorney here in Washington. What we're told from the White House uh, point of view, though, is that they, uh, there was no ever uh, any danger to the president. There were no injuries here. This is usually uh, an area bustling with tourists, even uh, late into the evening. Thankfully, nobody was hurt. Sarah? All right. Thank you so much, Evan Perez. There with reporting outside of the White House. Appreciate it. Poppy? This morning, President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy say yesterday's debt ceiling meeting was productive, so that's good. But they still don't have a deal to raise the debt ceiling, with just we are nine days away, folks, from a potentially catastrophic default. The two sides remain at odds over issues such as introducing caps on future spending and imposing tougher work requirements for federal, federal aid programs, right, like Medicaid and food stamps, et cetera. Joining us now, happy to have in studio the president of the Minneapolis Federal Reserve, Neil Kashkari. He is one of 12 Fed officials with a vote this year on interest rates. We'll get to that in a moment as well. Our next meeting on that is just weeks from today. It's good to have you. Thank you for coming back. Good to see you. We'll get to Fed rates because you made some news on that this week in a moment. But just please take us inside the Fed if you could. What are the conversations you guys are having on a possible U.S. default? Well, it's very concerning. I mean, we have a mission to try to achieve... Uh, 2% inflation and maximum employment. We have a mission to try to preserve financial stability, but we do not have the ability to protect the U.S. economy against the downside of a default. A default would be a message to investors all around the world of a eroding confidence in America. We can't do anything about that. You're saying the Fed, there's no break glass scenario. The Fed can't do anything. The, the Fed cannot fix this. Only Congress and the executive branch can fix this. Uh, it was striking to hear President Biden over the weekend at the G7 say he cannot guarantee that the U.S. will not default. Can you guarantee the American people that the U.S. will not default this summer? I mean, I can hope, like all other Americans, that our political leaders come together. But this is literally up to Congress and the executive branch to resolve. We do not have the ability at the Fed to address it. Are you worried now more than ever before? Because you were, you were one of the lead voices in TARP, right, in the 2008 financial crisis. And we remember what happened, what the market did when Congress failed to reach a deal on that troubled asset relief program. Then they got it together after the market tanked. Are you as worried now as you've ever been about a po possible default? No. Look, I'm, I'm an optimist, and I hope that our, I think our political leaders on both sides of the aisle understand what's at stake. So I'm cautiously optimistic that they will reach an agreement in the time frame that Secretary Yellen has laid out. But I can't game that out any better than you can. Uh, some, several prominent lawmakers and business leaders are saying, that's it. We're done. Abolish the debt limit. Get rid of the debt ceiling. <clears throat> Pointless to take us to the brink. This is self-inflicted. Do you think that's a good idea? I think that's true. I mean, so Congress decides how much to spend and then Treasury has to follow their guidance and go and spend it. And so I do think it's odd from what I understand, we're the only democracy that has this second layer of That's right. None of the other G7 check. leaders in their countries have it. But ultimately, it's up for Congress to decide what to do there. Do you think that's a... Would that be prudent at this point? I think it would be prudent once we get through this scenario to figure out why do we do this to ourselves and can we come up with a more rational approach in the future? So let's talk about rate hikes and, and what the Fed is going to do in three weeks. Because you said this week you are open to the idea of pausing interest rate hikes for now but not ending them. And that made me immediately think of the stop and go uh, rate hikes in the 70s. And economists broadly agree that that was not good, that that continued the pain. 
why wouldn't it do the same this time? Well, we, we need to get more information, and we need to get information about the underlying inflationary dynamics, and we need to get information about the health of the banking sector. Actually, you and I are saying the same thing. What I don't want to do is announce that we're done raising rates, have inflation pick back up again, and then we have to reverse ourselves and start raising again. I would rather signal, hey, even if we take June as a skip, we're going to get more information and we're leaving July alive and future meetings alive so we can get more information. It's precisely to avoid that back and forth that we experienced in the 1970s. The Fed's own staff economists are predicting a mild recession. I know Jay Powell doesn't exactly see it that way, but should we be concerned that if they're right about that, the Fed's ability to rescue the economy from a recession, however mild it may be, is just significantly limited by high inflation? Well, it's a challenge because we have to get inflation down. And so it's possible that if there were a mild recession, that that would bring inflation down for us, and then we wouldn't have to use monetary policy. But if inflation is entrenched, inflation is high, then we may have to do more with monetary policy, which means that we may not uh, be in a position to step in as quickly as we otherwise would. Yeah. So yes. So yes. So yes. Okay. <laughs> on the, <laughs> just to put it clearly just for people at 8 in the morning. Um, for, on the banking crisis, this was also interesting. We always like interviewing you because yeah. you answer the questions. <laughs> and you said on another network, it is far too soon to declare all clear on banking problems. Is the worst of this banking crisis over? I hope so. But it really, in my view, it really is going to be determined by inflation. If inflation stays high, if inflation is more entrenched than we realize, then we're going to have to keep interest rates high for longer, and that's going to increase the pressures on the banking sector. If the markets are right that inflation is going to fall quickly the second half of this year, then monetary policy could normalize sooner and the banking stresses should be relieved. So it really, to my view, really comes down to what's happening in inflation. How long is it going to be high? Because Secretary Yellen said, and our Matt Egan had this great reporting last Thursday from her meeting with CEOs, that she thinks more bank mergers, essentially, or takeovers may be, may be in the cards for the future. We saw Jamie Dimon and J.P. Morgan swoop in and buy up the assets of failing First Republic Bank. Was that a good thing? Because you talk a lot about banks being too big, or does it concern you that J.P. Morgan, America's biggest bank, just got bigger? It concerns me. We've, we faced the same awful choice in 2008, where we had to allow big banks to get bigger to preserve near-term financial stability, knowing that it made the problem worse in the long term. So we're right back where we were. I mean, it's different, but we're similar situation yeah. that we were in 08. I hear you, but Katie Porter, uh, obviously, is a leading Democratic voice in this in Congress, said, look, it's sort of the best option we had. And here's how Jamie Dimon defended it just about a week ago. Here he was. Most of our size accrues to our clients. So if you look at, you know, we do most, large, small banks can't do, we do like banking large corporations in 50 countries around the world and move $10 trillion a day. They, you know, it's hard. So these are, these are big, complex things. We're not big and complex we want to be. Yeah. We're big and complex because the people we serve are big and complex. A reporter asked him, are you too big to fail? And he said to her before that answer, essentially, I don't even know what that means anymore. Yeah, I know what that means. Yes, they're too big to fail. And the, this has created a systemic risk in the banking sector because customers know that essentially the biggest banks in America have unlimited deposit insurance. So if you're a customer, if you're an industrial company with a mid-sized bank and you're getting a little bit nervous, why wouldn't you just move all your know, money but, to the biggest banks? So I, I understand that thinking. I'm just wondering, what would you do about it? So make like, well, big would banks. you have sold First Republic to PNC no, no. instead? The, you can't really. In the middle of the, the crisis, you have to take the best you can deal with. But now. Why don't we make sure that the biggest banks in America actually have enough of their own capital, 
So J.P. Morgan has lower levels of capital than many community banks in America. I've heard you say that before. Okay, that's the You're opposite. You're asking for like 40%? In the 20s. In the 20s. They could then actually protect the U.S. economy from when big banks inevitably long-term make mistakes. I have to ask you one final question. Sure. I know we have to go, but Michael Barr, the Fed's vice chair for supervision, wrote a report last month that clearly lays out missteps within the Fed, okay, when it comes to not uh, protecting against these bank collapses that we saw. Um, but I am yet, and all of us are yet, to really hear any changes to ensure history doesn't repeat itself. Why is that? Well, I think it's still soon. I think it's still the crisis that is, you know, it's still hopefully behind us, but we'll see. Uh, and I think changes need to come. That's why I just put out an essay saying these are the it. types of changes that we need to make. But within the Fed, you guys yourselves. I understand. I Trust me, I'm with you 100%. And uh, th these policies are set by folks in Washington, D.C. Those of us at the regional banks can try to have influence suggesting points of direction. But ultimately, it's driven by Washington. You think some at the Fed should take some accountability, make changes? Oh, I think we have to make changes. Absolutely. I appreciate having you, Neil. Thank, Thank you. you very, very much. Sarah. New developments now in Russia's war in Ukraine. The governor of Russia's Belgorod region says eight people are injured after a group of anti-Putin Russian nationals based in Ukraine crossed the border to carry out an attack. This video just coming into CNN appears to show unidentifiable vehicles and people at a border crossing in Belgorod region. CNN cannot independently verify the date that this video was filmed. CNN's Fred Plaikin is live for us uh, in Kyiv this morning, the capital. What do you know about the situation now in Belgorod? Yeah. Hi there, Sarah. Well, it's so interesting that we have that video now coming into us of uh, what appears to be that border crossing, because we also just got information from the Russian Defense Ministry a couple of minutes ago, and they now claim that they have pushed all the remaining cross-border attackers, as they put it, back into Ukrainian territory. So they say that this is essentially done with as far as the Russian military is concerned. It's quite interesting because in their statement, the Russians call these people Ukrainian ultra-nationalists, where obviously the Ukrainians say, and these groups themselves say, that these are indeed Russians who here in Ukraine are fighting on the side of Ukraine, but when they are in Russia are fighting against Vladimir Putin. And the Kremlin came out earlier today and said they were extremely concerned about the situation down there in Belgorod, but they also claimed that this was an attack from Ukraine and used that to justify Vladimir's, uh, Vladimir Putin's war uh, on Ukraine, which obviously has been ongoing for such a long time. It's quite interesting because a couple of minutes ago, I was able to speak to the national security advisor of Ukraine, and he once again said that Ukraine has nothing to do with this attack, that this is a problem uh, for Russians within Russia, that the Ukrainians may have these folks on their territory fighting against Russia uh, when, when, when they're here in Ukraine. However, when they move into Russia, they do that at their own peril and they do that on their own. In any case, Sarah, this is something that was extremely embarrassing for the Kremlin, obviously talking about how strong their security forces are. Nevertheless, this incident has been ongoing now for more than 24 hours and residents of that area still are not able to return to their homes, Sarah. All right, Fred Plaikin, thank you so much for that reporting. Stay safe there in Kyiv. Big new movement on the Mar-a-Lago classified documents case against former President Trump. Sources tell CNN prosecutors have subpoenaed the Trump Organization for information about business deals with foreign companies, specifically companies in countries that may have been interested in the types of classified materials recovered from the former president. Now, the Trump Organization has just released a statement writing in part, we made a strict pledge not to enter into any new foreign deals while President Trump was in office, a commitment that the company fully complied with. CNN's Kara Scannell 
is following all of this very closely. Is that right? Did that happen? Trump org didn't make any deals with any companies? Generally? Yeah, I mean, they have not announced any deals while Trump was in office with any foreign governments. But this or was in about after he was in office, right? Well, this, this subpoena, as the New York Times put the timing as since 2017, so the period that Trump was in office and then, uh, you know, continuing into now. And we do know that they did strike one deal with Oman in which they're building a Trump-branded golf course there. Uh, that is one of the countries that, according to the Times, is on the subpoena. You know, so our sources are saying this appears that uh, the special counsel is looking to see if any countries that may have been interested in classified documents were involved in any business dealings with the Trump organization. You know, what we're talking about, though, is the completed deals. We don't know if there were any conversations or discussions, so the subpoena would capture any information like that. But certainly it shows the thoroughness of the special counsel investigation, and that is far from over. Um, we'll move to another case now. Uh, he, Donald Trump is set to be in a Manhattan court um, facing 34 charges in relation to the Stormy Daniels case. Um, there is some video now. Um, do we have it of him? Okay. Oh, he's going to, oh, sorry. He's going to be via video. Oh, my producer is just trying to correct me because it happens at this hour. Um, <laughs> Thank goodness for our He will not be in court. He, it will be via court. Right. He did not show up for the E. Jean Carroll case, but he'll be in court for this part of this case. Um, what are we expecting to see and hear? Yeah, so he's going to appear virtually. They kind of arranged this so it wouldn't be, create the kind of, you know, security havoc that it would of the former president yeah. appearing. But the point of this hearing is for the judge to explain to Trump this protective order he put in place earlier this month, and that basically means what he can and cannot say about the case. And the judge has been clear this is not a gag order. Trump can still defend himself. He's going to be out on the campaign trail. But he's saying that, you know, as part of this order, you can't take information that the prosecutors turn over to you and post it on social media. You can't, you know, try to um, expose information that you're receiving as part of this, you know, discovery process, which is grand jury material that's all secretive, you know, trying to, you know, create, I guess, the rules of the road. And the prosecutors asked for this hearing. They wanted the judge to speak to Trump directly. You know, they said because of his, you know, extensive history of posting things on social media and at times inflammatory statements about individuals. So any individual that's potentially a witness in this case. Uh, so the judge is going to explain this to Trump and also, you know, explain what the consequences are that he could be held in contempt if he violates this court order. Yes, you know, thank you on thank both you. fronts. A stark warning now from the Surgeon General on the mental health impact of social media on children. We'll break down the findings and what parents need to know. And a teenage suffering. A teenage surfer, I'm sorry, recovering after a possible shark attack at the Jersey Shore comes after two bites in Florida in a single week. That's ahead. Terrifying. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. You're probably going away, maybe, this weekend for the long Memorial Day weekend. It's just days away, and airlines are bracing for significant crowds. AAA forecasts that 3.4 million travelers will fly this holiday weekend. That's up 11% over last year. This will be a true test for the airline industry, which suffered mass cancellations and delays last summer. And as many more passengers take to the skies, the FAA is also warning of more delays out of some airports in particular that could increase up to 45 percent over last summer. Joining us now is United Airlines CEO Scott Kirby. Scott, good morning. It's good to have you. Good morning. Thanks for having me. We don't want another last summer. You don't want another last summer. Can you guarantee People United is prepared for this surge in demand over the summer or should they buckle up for more delays and cancellations? 
Well, I think the whole industry has done a very good job of getting prepared for this summer. And at United, you know, we have 10% more employees per, per block hour than we had uh, pre-pandemic. We got 25% more spare aircraft. We've doubled our investment in spare parts around the system. And so we are, we are prepared. Um, we've also this year so far have run the best operation that we've run in our history. Uh, you know, there will be weather. There will be air traffic control delays that happen uh, here and there. But uh, we feel very well prepared for the summer. Okay, so uh, bottom line, people won't experience, not weather-related, but other than weather, the same thing they had to deal with last summer for United? Well, it won't be perfect. Uh, it's never, it's never going to be perfect. But, uh, you know, we, again, we, we have the lowest cancellation rate that we've had in our history. We're mm-hmm. running the best operation we have in our history. Uh, and so I think it will be, you know, uh, you know, summers are always busy. There's always thunderstorms. Uh, there's always those challenges. Uh, so it won't be perfect, but I think it will be uh, a good summer overall. How worried are you about the FAA's shortage in air traffic controllers? <clears throat> It's my number one concern for the long term and for the, for the near term and the long term on wow. structural. I mean, Secretary of Transportation, you know, publicly said uh, a couple of weeks ago that the air traffic control system is, is 3,000 controllers short. We have fewer controllers that today than we had 30 years ago. I'm here in Denver the last two days, um, you know, the, because of sick calls, they had a staffing shortage, reduced the capacity of the airport by 30 percent. Right. The arrival rate at this you know, huge, wonderful, so 30% reduced uh, because we have air traffic controller delays. And the, the challenge is, you know, it's a two to three year period of training from the time you start yeah. and you need 3000 controllers and there's something like 1500 a year retiring. Wow. Um, and so what we really need is the FAA reauthorization bill to authorize more funds. It's not their fault, by the way, it's a 20 year problem uh, that we need money so that they can have the authorization to go start hiring uh, and addressing it. But if we don't address this, this is the issue uh, yeah. that limits the, the operations around the country. It's by far the biggest issue. Clearly, your, your biggest concern, and that says a lot because you have a lot of things to think about every day. Let me ask you about what the Biden administration has been speaking a lot about and what they put forth just a few weeks ago, saying they're going to establish basically new rules, a new rule to require airlines to provide cash payments instead of just refunds for significant travel disruptions that are not caused by weather that are within your control as an airline. How will that affect United? Do you support this? Well, first, as I said, we've invested heavily. We want to run a good operation. That's the right thing for our customers. And we are running the best we've done in history. Second point is, by far the biggest issue that creates, and it cascades throughout the day, you know, is air traffic control. Yesterday, when there's a 30% reduction in arrivals, that doesn't just affect Denver. That affects all the airplanes that are flying throughout the rest of the system the rest of the day and all the crews. Uh, that's the, but the biggest issue, I think, is really one of safety. And we built the safest system in the world here in the United States. And it's built on a foundation of culture that our employees don't think about cost. We tell them safety, safety, safety. It's number one. You never even think about the cost. And I don't want a pilot or a mechanic thinking about that, about the expense if they decide to delay a flight or cancel mm-hmm. a flight for a close call on safety. And, you know, we built that foundation and we should not chip away at that foundation with anything that jeopardizes. And I think this rule would jeopardize mm-hmm. it. So I think it's bad policy. Um, and, uh, okay. and we should focus on getting the FAA reauthorization done and getting more staffing for them. Okay. But bad policy is your view on what the White House wants to do. Look, um, I, I, Every CEO right now has to be thinking, is this country going to default potentially in nine days? I'd just like your private sector view on that, your message to Congress, Scott, this morning, and what a default would mean for all your employees. 
So, look, I, I think we've done a pretty good job this year of going through, you know, the inflation and, you know, what the Fed has done to get inflation headed back in the right direction. I think our base case is we're either going to have a mild recession or a soft landing, and that's a pretty good outcome. But the economy is balanced on a knife's edge. We saw this with Silicon Valley Bank. We had a 15 percent drop in bookings right yep. after that happened. That was just a scare. But we should not have an unforced error. And we need our political class on both sides equal uh, to find a compromise and avoid an unforced error that could tip an otherwise pretty good economy into something really bad that could affect the whole everyone, all of their constituents, yeah. whether they're Democrats or Republicans. It affects their constituents on both sides. Let's just get it done. But, but the fact that you had a 15 percent drop in bookings after just one California bank failed what, what, what are you predicting? Yeah. Are you modeling Absolutely. out like J.P. Morgan has a war room where three times a day they're meeting to discuss what a default yeah. would mean? Do you have that? Are you modeling out what that would mean for your business? Uh, we're watching it, but, you know, we're, you know, unlike J.P. Morgan, who's doing a lot of finan you know, financial yeah. things will happen immediately. It'll be a little slower fuse for us. Um, and we're watching it. And, and, and my hope is that we avoid it entirely. Um, but that also that we get through it quickly. But it just it puts a huge risk on the economy because the kind of things that Jamie Dimon has to worry about at J.P. Morgan, they can become a contagion. That's the risk of this. You know, you knock one domino down and the other dominoes start right. to fall. And if it's just the one domino and two yeah. days later nothing else happens, then it's no big deal. But you, you, why do you want to knock one domino down when the rest of them are lined up? By the um, way, you don't have and, to. And this is why we should just avoid right. it. Right. You don't have to. I agree. It's totally self-inflicted. <laughs> I agree. Let me end on this. Uh, we've been talking yeah. a lot about AI as a society, but and in particular on this show, we're all fascinated by it and a little terrified, if I'm being honest. How mm -hmm. do you think about artificial <laughs> intelligence, Scott, running one of the biggest airlines in the world? Are there problems it could help solve yeah. for United? It's not going to fly our planes, I hope. It's not going to fly our planes, but I, but I think it, it, there are huge opportunities for us. One of the ones that I'm most intrigued with is communicating better with customers. When something happens and we have a delay or a cancellation, you know, I think we're better than any other airline in the world at actually telling you what's going on and telling you why, but we're still not good at it. Um, and I think artificial intelligence, this is just an example, there's tons of examples, but an example of where we can tell you, like, look, there's, there's, XYZ issue, there's this maintenance issue, there's, this, there's a strike in Paris, and because of that, you know, your airplane is on the ground in Paris and it's going to be delayed. Whatever the, giving people the details mm. uh, of what causes a delay or cancellation is one of those examples. If you tell people what's going on, it just de-stresses the situation. Could, they can understand. They may not like it, but they can understand. Okay. Do you think it could fix the lack of enough, having enough FAA um, and air traffic controllers? You know, I am intrigued with the idea of changing how we use airspace. Today, we still fly highways in the sky yeah. that were laid down 100 years ago. A lot of them were old bonfires. Um, and so instead of flying, you know, fly straight from here in Denver to you in New York, we fly a zigzag path on the highways in the sky. I'm intrigued that AI might help us mm. get more efficient in the air traffic system. That'll take years. Um, I mean, look, the FAA's got to have different technology before we can yeah. do that. Uh, but it is an intriguing possibility okay. somewhere down the road. All right. We look forward to it. Uh, Scott Kirby, CEO of United. United Airlines. Always good to have you. Thanks. Thank you. Three Southwest states reaching a landmark deal to prevent the Colorado River from running dry. We'll tell you how much each state aims to cut their water use to try and stave off an even bigger crisis.
Three states have reached a landmark deal to protect the Colorado River, Arizona, California, and Nevada. They agreed to cut at least 3 million acre feet of water through 2026, about 10% of the state's Colorado River allocation. This comes after months of tense negotiations to save the vital water supply. CNN's Lucy Kavanaugh has all the details. A landmark deal to prevent the Colorado River crisis from worsening. The Biden administration striking an agreement with California, Arizona and Nevada to cut at least 3 million acre feet of water from the river through 2026. This is the largest conservation agreement uh, in the history of the Colorado River. So it really is monumental. That's roughly 10% of the water supply those states rely on from the river. California plans to contribute more than half of the allotted savings. Historically, this water has been extremely contentious. Right? California was not going to give up its seniority rights for water. Um, so what I see today was quite historic and that California was willing to cede some of its water rights. The deal will cost the federal government at least $1.1 billion and will be paid with funds from the Inflation Reduction Act. Staking across the southwest and into Mexico, the Colorado River is the lifeblood of the region, supplying water to more than 40 million people across seven states and 30 tribal nations. Major cities rely on the water, including Las Vegas, which gets nearly 90 percent of its water from the river. This deal comes at a critical juncture for the region, as water levels have been decreasing rapidly for nearly 20 years. Two of the largest reservoirs in the nation, Lake Powell and Lake Mead, have seen water levels plummet close to so-called dead pools, which means water would no longer flow through their dams. Record snowpack in the west, particularly in the Rocky Mountain region, provided some relief this year. We lost all of our water. But the drought has pushed farmers like Will Thielander to the brink. Do you fear that the future of farming in Arizona is under threat? Yeah, no one can produce it like the Colorado River can for food. It's just nowhere on earth is it done like that. Mm. So, yeah, I'm really worried. 50 years down the road, unless we come up with solutions, farming won't be here. Now, the proposed cuts amount to about half of the reductions the federal officials initially called for. So there are some concerns that this reduction won't necessarily be enough to sustain the system uh, as drought conditions intensify in the years to come. But the proposal does buy some more time. The plan now must go uh, undergo a review, and the federal government is expected to release a common schedule later this week. Sarah, Poppy, back to you. Lucy, this is really significant, and it is really scary to see how low the Colorado River has yeah. gotten. Appreciate your reporting. New reports, LeBron James could be headed for retirement. We'll talk about that and a lot more with former Miami head coach and NBA analyst Stan Van Gundy. He's next. It's over. It's over. Denver makes history. The Nuggets are going to the NBA Finals for the first time in franchise history. We really mean it when we say a history-making night in the NBA with Denver ending the Lakers season after a four-game sweep and now heading to the NBA Finals for the first time ever. With four seconds on the clock, LeBron drove to the bucket, but his attempt at a tie was blocked. Still, the Lakers star set his personal record with 31 points in the first half of a conference game. But it might not be enough for him to stay. There's speculation about LeBron's future after he delivered this message in a post in the post-game pre-conference. 
post-game press conference. I had a lot to think about, to be honest. And um, just for me personally, going, going forward with the game of basketball, got a lot to think about. Joining us now, former Miami Heat coach and analyst for NBA on TNT, Stan Van Gundy. Stan, you got to be happy about the Heat. Well, the Heat are happy about the Heat. Um, <laughs> you know, to, to be ahead as an eight seed, three to nothing in the conference finals, I think everyone is surprised. Boston was the team left in the playoffs with the best record, and they've been dominated in this series. All right, we, we heard the comment from LeBron yeah. um, after someone asked him. Um, you, what did you make of it? It's leading to people saying, uh-oh, he is going to retire after this season. He's not going to retire. I don't <laughs> think that guy's ever going to retire. I think 20 years from now, we're going to be talking about what he's doing at 58 years old. I mean, what he's doing at 38, yeah. most guys would give their right arm for one season like that in the prime of their career. He's been absolutely amazing. Um, you know it's coming at some point where he'll retire, um, but I think he's serious about wanting at least to try to play with his son. So I think he'll hang on for a little while longer. He's still playing at a really high level. So why do you think he said that? Just exhaustion from the season, disappointment? I mean, every, we all have to reassess at certain points, right? Well, absolutely, and, and I think for a professional basketball player at 38 years old, I, I think he's had to reassess probably several times. And I think at the end of that, look, he didn't even come out in the first half until there were four seconds to go last night. The guy was obviously exhausted, disappointed, everything else. And it will make you think. But I think as he gets some rest um, and realizes he can still play at a really, really high level and He's already the NBA's all-time leading scorer. This guy could get to 40,000 points um, and start to put some of those records out of reach. The Lakers um, went to the playoffs as the seventh seed, which is pretty unusual for the Lakers. Um, are you surprised by this sweep? I really wasn't totally surprised. The games were all really competitive. I mean, it wasn't like... Miami just blew out Boston in game three. There were no games like that in that series. They were all very, very close. Um, what has surprised me all year is people have underestimated the Denver Nuggets. The Denver Nuggets, from the middle of December on, were in first place in the West. They have, they're 12-3 and three in the playoffs. They're just rolling through people. And people have talked about everyone else as the team to beat in the West. The Warriors, the Lakers, the Suns, the Clippers. No one was talking about Denver, even though they had been the best team. I think now people will have to concede that Denver was clearly the best team in the West all year and probably the favorite to win the championship uh, going in, but I certainly wouldn't count out the Miami Heat. Stan, forgive me, I'm going to get in big trouble, but I have to ask you, who is the GOAT, the greatest of all time, Michael Jordan or LeBron James? Well, I, I think we leave some names out of that, unfortunately. Um, so I, I'm going to, as any great politician would do, I'm just going <laughs> to hedge on this. Oh, come um, on, Stan. And if you're in the discussion, <laughs> no, no, if you're in the discussion, that's good enough for me, but we need to include 
Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, yeah, who totally. maybe Absolutely. had the best career of anyone. Um, certainly, Bill Russell's championships bring him into the equation. And people have to look at guys like Wilt Chamberlain and Oscar Robertson and what they did throughout their careers. So it's not a, it's not a two-man race uh, by any means, but it's hard to say that anyone, I'll, I'll say this, it would be hard for anyone to make the case that anyone has had a better career than LeBron James. All right, Stan, thank you for that political answer. Appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> Happening in the next thank hour. Detained Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gerskovich is expected to appear in a Moscow court, the latest on the fight to bring him home. Wouldn't leave you without a morning moment, especially this one. Cowboys on horseback in Michigan trying to lasso a runaway cow in the middle of I-75. The cow was eventually captured and traffic resumed to normal. But that is quite some video. Giddy up. The producers were right. That is quite some video. <laughs> Thank you for being with us. Thank you for being with me. My you pleasure. can sleep one more tomorrow. Yay. Go back to your normal <laughs> show, Lucky Duck, at 9 a.m., which is CNN New Central, which starts right now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.